right, good morning. If you are uh, new with us, either in person or if you are uh, turning in on the uh, live stream this morning, welcome. Um, we are blessed to share God's word with you today. Um, open your Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Um, we have been going verse by verse through this incredible gospel, um, usually covering about a paragraph or a, a, a block or a section of verses each week. We are in no rush here as John is really jam-packed with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it is a, really a wonderful biblical truth and we notice the further along we go, this really becomes an in-depth study into the person of Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And um, there really are just so many advantages for us as, um, as a body um, going through the books of the Bible in this way, verse by verse. Um, for example, each week, you know the verses that we'll be studying. You can just look ahead at the next group of verses or paragraph, and those are the verses uh, we'll be preaching each week. So you yourselves can pre-study the verses before you ever come to the service Sunday. And um, you'll also have a really good understanding of the context of the verses that we're going through. Um, because as we go through this study, we are, of course, covering the verses before and after. Um, we're also not skipping over the difficult passages. The preacher has to preach them. So really, it's preaching the word of God the way it was given to us in book form. But What's maybe the best part, especially going through a gospel, is we know each week the focus of the text is on Jesus himself. Um, so each week we're being fed the very words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And today's text is uh, no different. Um, last week we finished uh, verses 20 through 26. So today we'll start our reading at verse 27. And we're going to cover down to verse 36 today. Verse uh, 27 opens with the words of Christ. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. 
while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Wow. Um, one of the hallmarks of John's gospel is Jesus' determination as he resolutely turns towards the cross and what he calls my hour, the hour. And after repeatedly saying through the first 11 chapters of John, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It is not my hour. In chapter 12, there's a shift, a great shift. Uh, we learned at the start of this chapter that there is now just six days left before the Passover where on this Passover, God himself will supply the lamb needed for the ultimate sacrifice, the one who would be slain for the sins of his people. We read last week in verse 23 that this hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour is his impending death upon the cross and is now imminent as the days of the Passover continue to unfold in the story. It is probably Wednesday. Tuesday was the second trip to rough up the temple. It's probably Wednesday, possibly as late as Thursday. I think it's probably Wednesday. Friday will be the day that the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified. We are two or three days away now from the cross. Um, now, the other gospel writers describe this period as a time when Jesus will both um, affirm his complete commitment to completing the Father's will of going to the cross. And at the same time, we also see our dear Lord Jesus deeply distressed. Matthew describes him in the Garden of Gethsemane as having great sorrow, and he fell on his face and prayed. Luke tells us, that the Lord being in great agony, that the Lord Jesus Christ continued to pray and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And though John's gospel doesn't record for us a parallel scene from the garden, he does here give us a glimpse into the anguish that our dear Lord was going through as his hour was now approaching. So let's go through this incredible text together you'll see in your bulletin i've broken it down into five sections for us today and the first thing i want you to notice is the anguish of the sun the anguish of the sun and these are very important verses for us to understand as they deal directly with the atoning work of christ so notice in verse 27 again how it opens these are, are, are profound words by the lord jesus christ he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Is that what I should say? Should I say, Father, save me from the hour, this hour? The answer is no. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. In other words, everything that we've been reading about up to this point in John's gospel has been pointing us to this very moment. This is what we need to understand, that everything about the life of Christ, his birth, his ministry, 
his miracles. Even the opposition and the persecution, all of it is, is leading up to this hour. This is the single most important thing that the world will ever see. The Messiah has come to reveal himself, yes, as the Christ, as the Son of God. But the purpose for his coming is to lay down his sacrifice for his people's sin. And now the hour is upon him. This is important to understand. When Jesus says, now my soul has become troubled, this isn't a cry of someone who's preoccupied with the, the physical torture that he's about to face. Now, to be clear, through his omniscience, I'm sure he's played this thing out thousands of times in his mind. He's, he's mentally experienced what it is that awaits him on Friday. His hands will be bound around a post as, as Roman soldiers fiercely scourge his back. One lashing less of bringing him to the point of death, tearing out chunks of his flesh, exposing probably his organs. He's seen from eternity past his very own creation, tearing out his beard, it's prophesied in the Old Testament, punching him in the face, piercings from the crown of thorns that will be pushed upon his brow. He knows what kind of pain is going to be afflicted upon him as they drive those three to four inch Roman spikes, not nails, spikes, through his hands and his feet. He knows he will be hanging, arms outstretched, nailed to that cross, slowly, painfully suffocating as his blood pours out. He will be despised and hated by men, bruised for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. No one who was about to suffer what he was about to endure physically won't be troubled. You're troubled even going back to the dentist. But this is no mere man. This is the Christ, the incarnate Son of God. This is one who who stilled the, the raging waves on Galilee and, and rebuked his disciples for their lack of faith. This is the one who walked through the, the massive sea of crowds as its leaders searched in order to kill him. This is the same Jesus who will very soon instruct his own disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. Throughout history, there have been thousands, I dare say tens of thousands of faithful Christians who have faced extreme physical torture, martyrism, who through it all have had resiliency not only to endure their persecution, but have joyfully even sung hymns and praised God while they've been burnt at the stake. So how can the one who says, let not your hearts be troubled, say here, my soul has become troubled? The answer is, is because what Christ is set 
to experience is something far worse, far worse than what anyone has ever endured. What Christ is anguished by is that temporary separation from the Father. As he is going to endure the wrath of God poured out upon him to atone for our sins. And that is a sacrifice truly beyond all description. The physical torture that awaits him is real. And, and it's weighty, no doubt. But that's not the supreme sacrifice that Christ is about to make. No, he will bear himself the wrath of God the Father poured out as a payment for our sins. And as we meditate on what these verses mean, we should also consider a valuable lesson in our own lives. For not only do they teach us about Jesus Christ, but they also teach us how we might find comfort when our souls are deeply troubled. For Jesus, he's not worried or troubled by what would be best for him at this point. No, he will say in the garden, not my will, but your will be done, Father. He combats the trouble by turning to his priority. What is his priority? What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? Sh should I try to evade this? He says, no, it is for this very purpose that I have come. As joint heirs in Christ, I think there is a lot for us to consider in our own lives that the way that you and I fight the troubles and the pains of this world is by living for God's priorities. Why are you here? Why are you in the situation that you're in? Why has God got, uh, given the gifts that he has blessed you with as a a believer living for Christ, it is very likely that things will become very difficult for you. And as our own country turns increasingly intolerant to the words of God, living for Christ may in fact very soon become costly. There may be much pain involved, especially if our nation continues down its path of wickedness. And if we so boldly and publicly declare and name the name of Jesus, it might start to cost us something. It already has with some of our own family losing employment for their convictions of faith. But the way that you fight the pain is by focusing on the priority of why God has you here. And the priority of everything we do is we do it all for the glory of God. And for the Lord Jesus Christ, his hour has come. And he says that while this is a troubling moment, for he knows the wrath the perfect Son of Man must bear, he says, it is for this very purpose I came. And what was that purpose? Verse 28 tells us, Father, glorify your name. 
in spite of the depth of Jesus' very real anguish, there is nevertheless an underlining strength, a, a resolve by the power of the Holy Spirit that runs through all of Christ's words. For this very purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now we understand that Jesus came to lay down his life as a ransom to provide a means of salvation for whosoever would believe. We know this, but notice here, Jesus doesn't give this as his chief purpose. This isn't his chief purpose. Above everything else, it is to glorify the Father. Jesus' anguish submits to the glory that he longs to bring to the Father. He will not shrink away, for this is the purpose for his very hour. Might we also ask ourselves, is that my chief purpose in life? Do I live in such a way that says, Lord, my life is not my own. I give it all to you. Whatever you ask of me, I'll, I'll do it. Whatever you need of me, I'll give it. Wherever you ask me to go, I will go there. Just glorify your name through my life. Do you live that way? You know, for quite a while now, people have been falsely led to believe that to uh, believe or to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it must be centered around making your life better here on earth. That it's all about you and your best life now. <laughs> in fact, if you go in many of the, they don't have many Christian bookstores left, but if you go to one of their stores or go on to any of the websites, they're usually the books that are the number one bestsellers. And after years and years of this deception being taught and sold, we now have all these so-called churches filled with these people believing God is here to serve us, not for us to serve God. Bizarro world, upside down. It's a different gospel. It is a different gospel, and I suspect this is probably part of the, the great falling away that Paul says must happen in 2 Thessalonians 2. So we need not worry about that, as I suspect those days will soon be gone. Because if one good thing has come from all of this craziness, uh, that there has been a sifting of the church at large. A clarity, if you will, of who is a believer and who is not. And one of the ways that you can know is just to ask yourself simply, is it your heart's desire for God to be glorified through your life? No matter the cost. If you were to say, you know, I just can't say that right now. There are some things in my life that I'm just, I'm, I'm just not willing to give up right now. Then what you may have stumbled across are some idols in your life that you need to ask God to deal with. If there's anything in your life that, that you would hold on to, I value this more than bringing glory to God. It's an idol that must be exposed. Remember what Jesus said last week, John 12, verses 25 and 26. He said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world 
will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, when uh, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, um, this is really good news for us because if we go back to the angelic announcement of the birth of Christ, it says in Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The glory of God is the means by which sinners find peace with God. Because God in his glory is going to deal with our sin on the cross through his son so that all who would believe in his name would have their sin removed. He would experience true forgiveness, true salvation, and the result of that is peace with God. So as followers of Christ, we don't have to uh, wonder or worry about how does God's glory end for us? The fact that God is glorified on the cross is for believers the greatest news <laughs> because in his glory, sin is being dealt with so that forgiveness would be a gift given by God. So when Jesus prays your Father, glorify your name, it is because his glory is full of grace and truth. And the very message of the gospel is a message of peace available for those on whom his favor rests. It's precisely what the angel said in Luke chapter 2, and it's precisely the story of the cross. So the question becomes, if God's glory is good news for those who have peace with God, how can I know that I have peace with God? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. The way that you can know that you have peace with God is by putting all of your faith in Christ and Christ alone. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you will in fact receive peace with God. And, well, you are now free to live your life for the glory of God, which is the perfect fulfillment of what that angel said again 2,000 years ago when Christ was born. Glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace to those on whom his favor rests. We can't earn our peace by good works. It's not by our achievement. It's all done through faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. Here we are listening to Jesus' genuine words of anguish and we see the strength of his obedience is found in his purpose. I came for this very hour. Father, glorify your name. Well, that leads us to the second section. 
I'll have to tell it to you. It's the father's response. The father's response. These are in your notes, by the way. Uh, let's go to the second half there of verse 28. John tells us some uh, something here. I've got this all out of whack. There we go. Then a voice came from heaven. From heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is the third time in the Gospels that we hear the voice of God the Father speak. Uh, he, of course, spoke at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my blood son in whom I'm well pleased. The second time we saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son whom I'm loved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. That was an affirm, uh, affirmation of his deity. And now here in John chapter 12 we hear a third time. As the father is once again affirming the life and ministry of the son. Now when he says father I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. We stop and ask some questions of the text here. When was the father already glorified through the Son. When do we see that past glory? Well, it certainly happened in the incarnation. It's the miraculous birth of Christ. For there must be praise of God. The, the incarnations is one of the greatest miracles ever recorded that the great and holy God of the universe should so take up the cause of his sinful, rebellious creation? That, that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us? And, and we, what? Beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and again, we heard this from the angelic announcement back in Luke chapter 2. What did it say? Glory to God in the highest. And of course we've uh, seen it all throughout uh, John's gospel. It happened every time a miracle happened. It happened uh, as Christ lived the perfect and sinless life. Everything that the son did, that was for the glory of God to be revealed. John chapter 11 verse 4. I think I saw this back there. There we go. John chapter 11, verse 4 told us, but when Jesus heard, what did he hear? When he heard, Lord, the one that you love is sick. This was the message of his good friend Lazarus. When Jesus heard the news about Lazarus, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Over and over again. We see God's glory on display. So the father says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It's going to happen again, he says. It's going to happen at the cross. It's going to happen at the resurrection. It's going to happen at Christ ascends to the right hand of the father. And it's going to happen when Christ returns the second time in power and glory to reign. And the glory of God, Habakkuk says, will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. 
But I don't want you to miss this. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. In this verse that's all about glory, we have to stop and ask ourselves, how is Christ glorifying the Father on the cross? And the answer is through his suffering. He is going to bring glory to the Father by his suffering. And how different this is from how people today think and live. Our, our world is not immune from glory. In fact, our world is filled with people who are glory seekers. Everyone's out to glorify themselves. Think about how the world is today as it tries to establish glory. It's by trimming some corporate ladder or whatever. It's by trying to draw attention to ourselves. But Christ, on the other hand, will bring glory to God by faithfully enduring suffering. Not by receiving some crown of applause or status, but by receiving a crown of thorns. That's what Christ did. So as we stop for just a moment and apply some of this, and we say that our purpose is we want to live for God's glory. Yeah, sign me up. I want to live for God's glory. If this is our calling to bring glory to God in all that we do, that doesn't always mean that doing so is always going to necessarily be easy or convenient. In fact, it most likely will mean the exact opposite of that. Will you be willing to bring glory to God no matter the cost? That's the question for today. Will it be sufficient for you if your only earthly reward for bringing God glory is knowing that through your life, God has been glorified? Is that enough? Nobody responds. The people maybe you encountered spit in your face. They tore up your sign. They laughed at your best attempt to, to point them to Christ. Will it be sufficient for you if no one recognizes you that you have poured your heart out in some act of service. Is that enough? And this can be in whatever you do. However you bring glory to God. But you know God saw it and he is glorified. Is that enough for us? Is that enough? Or at the end of the day, do we really just seek man's approval? I think it's something for us to consider. Verse 29, John goes on to tell us the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. So some thought the voice of God was just a, a natural event. They had a natural explanation for it. Uh, it's thunder. Others said an angel has spoken. So this, this group doesn't recognize it's coming from God the Father either but at least they're hearing it audibly. They recognize this is not thunder. Something supernatural is going on here. And in verse 30, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Not mine. We know from Scripture that natural man accepts not the things of God, right? So, who heard this divine affirmation of the Son? This was for the benefit of those who had 
ears to hear. Let them hear. This voice has come for your sake. Whose sake? The disciples. Uh, possibly those Greeks who had showed up earlier in the chapter. They were seeking after Jesus. Whoever God has placed his seal upon. So Jesus cries out as he expresses the reality of his anguish. As he knows his hour is approaching. And th there's a great pain involved in considering the coming the wrath of God that he must bear. For this very purpose I came to this hour. He deals with the anguish by turning to his purpose. He deals with his anguish by turning to his called purpose. That reality gives way to the response as God the Father speaks his words of affirmation. Let everyone know who has ears to hear that the Father is pleased with the Son and that what the Son is doing has already brought him glory and it will bring him glory again. That brings us to number three in verses 31 through 34, the result of the Son's obedience. What's the uh, result of all of this? We see uh, three specific things that Christ mentions here. First, we look at verse 31. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. As the Lord Jesus Christ anticipated, yes, the anguish the cross would bring. He is also anticipating, however, the triumph of the cross. The triumph. His death will bring judgment upon the world. And as it does frequently, frequently in John, the term world designates the evil, the evil satanic system in all who are in it. Now everything looks like the world wins at the cross. It looks like the enemies of Christ have won at the cross. After all, Christ is going to be betrayed by one of the twelve, one of his closest supposed friends. He's going to be arrested, mocked, beaten. He's going to be rejected by nearly everyone. He's going to be spit at, cursed at. He's going to be unjustly judged and sentenced. He's going to be crucified. He is going to die. And everything about that looks like the world has won. But not from heaven's perspective. Nope. Not from heaven's perspective. From heaven's perspective, it's very clear. Now is the judgment of this world. The, though Jesus came to save and, and not to judge, those who reject them throughout all of history then condemn themselves to eternal judgment. John 3, verse 17 through 18 explains this to us. The Lord Jesus Christ says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The fact that Jesus Christ, the sinless, blameless Son of God, has laid down his life as a sacrifice demonstrates to us 
just how serious sin is. When you consider that the only way for, for us sinners to be forgiven is through the blood of the Son of God. That tells you just how serious sin is. And if God is so serious about sin that the only way that he can redeem us sinners is through the death of his Son, what will happen to those who reject such an offer of grace? And so Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. What else does the triumph of the cross bring? Number two, he says at the end of verse 31, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So <laughs> number two, not only will Christ's death bring judgment on the evil world system, but also at the same time on its wicked ruler, the Satan, the devil's defeated. The devil's defeated, I say. Now, this is not uncommon for Scripture to refer to the devil in this way. He's, he's called in verse 31, maybe in your translation, the ruler of this world. It says it elsewhere also. Some translations will say the prince of this world. Um, he's also referred to the god of this age, lowercase g. The god of this age has blinded the unbelieving. And as was the case with the world, Satan's apparent victory at the cross was in reality, in reality his utter defeat. In the words of the writer to the Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 14, through his death, he, Jesus, would render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Hallelujah, indeed. Even at the cross, Jesus says, the devil is defeated. The devil's defeated. Satan thought that he had pulled out all the stops, right? He, he did everything in his power to stop the sun from fulfilling the purpose that he had come to accomplish. But unknowing to him what he meant for evil, God meant for good. And the sacrificial death of Christ was always the plan. It's always been the plan. We must never be confused to think that Jesus was some kind of a victim. That this was like plan B. No, Jesus said of his death, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. No, this was plan A. The cross was God's plan. It's God's plan. And God used Satan. And he used the evil intent of man's hearts in order to accomplish his perfect will. Praise God. Well, the last victory he points out to us is verse uh, 32. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Salvation is being secured for whoever believes in him. 
That's the result of the son's obedience. The unbelieving world is judged. The devil's defeated. And salvation is secured for all who believe. One, two, three. And by the way, this is fascinating. This is now the uh, third time in John that we see Jesus refer of his death in this way, of being lifted up. We saw it in uh, John 3.14 and John 8.28 and now here in chapter 12. When I am lifted up from the earth. Now what makes this fascinating is when you read the uh, Old Testament about the coming Messiah, he is described as being a king. But we also see him described as a suffering servant. And some of those prophecies are just incredible when you think about it. Take, for example, Psalm 22. We don't have time. We could go into a bunch of these. But Psalm 22, written six, seven hundred years before the cross. Okay? Hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever even dreamed up. Crucifixion was perfected by the Romans, but actually it was invented by the Persians around three to four hundred years before Christ. This was still written hundreds of years before the thought came to Persia. And yet Psalm 22 and elsewhere, written hundreds of years before the crucifixion, speak directly to the crucifixion of Christ. It sounds like it's right out of one of the gospel accounts. Verse one has the very words of Christ that you would cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Down in verse 16, it gets a little more spe specific. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 8, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is cited right out of the Gospels when the soldiers are dividing the Christ's clothes as he hangs on the cross. Now, the Jews would put a man to death by stoning him, okay? Um, acts of blasphemy, if you were considered a false prophet, and they always did this by stoning them. That's why we've already seen multiple times in the Gospel of John that they were picking up stones seeking to kill Jesus. We see the first martyr of church, Stephen, of course, die this way. But as far back as the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, it begins to paint a picture that the Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to die, and not by being stoned, but by being lifted up. Amen. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted isn't uh, it amazing that the evil perpetrated against Christ in his crucifixion, which is the high point of his opposition, becomes the very pinnacle of our praise. This is what we worship. Thanking God that he died on the cross. Now, when Jesus says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He's not saying, I'm drawing, I'm drawing everyone to myself. But that's what some universalists believe is being said. That, that through Christ's sacrifice, everyone's going to heaven. <laughs> he is, however, going to save men from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages. 
The phrase also stresses that all who are saved are saved by believing in the work of Christ on the cross. There is no access to God apart from the cross. Because only through Christ's death is sin satisfactorily atoned for and divine forgiveness granted as a gift. So what we see here in the words of Christ is he's moving from the turmoil we started with to the triumph, to the victory. But you've got to understand, nothing about the cross looks like victory. Nothing. I mean, Jesus is unjustly judged. He, he's beaten unrecognizable, Old Testament scriptures predict. And then the Son of God is murdered. Where are his 12 disciples as he's being lifted up? They've all fled. John, John is the only one left at the cross. Everyone else is gone. He has no home. He has no friends. He's stripped of his clothing. Humanly speaking, he literally dies with nothing. Everything about that day, everything screams he's been defeated. Everything screams he's failed. And yet Jesus tells us that there is ultimate victory in the cross. When I am lifted up, the work of salvation is secured for all who would believe. So, beloved, can I just encourage your hearts today? There are going to be all kinds of moments when we look around the world and conclude that righteousness has lost, conclude that evil has won somehow. Can I remind you? No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. Victory was secured for you on the cross. And there will be all kinds of moments where it will look like in a moment of time, in a, in a snapshot maybe, that righteousness has been defeated and evil has triumphed. And I'm just telling you, that's never the case. Because God is on his throne and he rules and reigns with Christ. And God's greatest passion is that his name be glorified. And his glory will triumph. He cannot be defeated. And if God will not be defeated, then those who are his children need not worry and you need not panic. Now, don't conclude that this means that you won't su suffer. The son suffered. And don't conclude it means that you won't be rejected. The son was rejected. <laughs> but it does mean that victory is secure. And that, beloved, is where we find our hope. That brings us to number four, and the abandonment of the people. Unable to accept the truth that the Messiah was to die, the crowd now responds. We're getting used to the crowd, hopefully, by now. Verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Um, we spent a lot of time last week on the title of the Son of Man, so we won't go through that. And as we have talked about repeatedly through this gospel, the Jewish people just could not accept that the Messiah must die. They, they, they just could not. They had made Messiah into their own image. They had made him into a David 
type warrior figure or someone who would be a political type leader who is to rule here now, save now, Hosanna. They wanted an earthly king. They thought, are, are, are you kidding me? A dead Messiah? So they answered, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, this confusion therein is not because they haven't been told. It is true that the Old Testament speaks of the Messiah as having an everlasting kingdom and that he will rule and reign on David's throne. That's all true. And Christ will. Christ will as he inaugurates the thousand-year reign, the, the millennial kingdom, when he returns, he will rule and reign on earth, but his first coming is his suffering. And this is described in Psalm 22. It's described in Isaiah 52 through 53 in incredible detail. Daniel 9.26, the anointed one will be cut off. Zechariah 12.10 talks about a future time when the Jewish people will, will plead for the mercy of God when they see the, the one that they have pierced. Zechariah 12.10. That's not the Messiah that they wanted, though. They wanted a Messiah who did stuff for them. If he, if, if he can raise dead people from life, what else can he do? Uh, surely he can overtake the Romans for us. Uh, the crowd's only interest has always been seen as this superficial, immediate kind of faith. They liked it when they got fed. They liked it when Jesus healed them. But when it came to time to put their faith in him as the Christ, they simply could not believe. Verse 37 tells us what happened to this crowd. Sadly, John says, though Christ had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They were very interested in a savior as long as it was a savior on their own terms, made in their own image which is no kind of salvation at all. Our fifth and final section is verse 35 through 36, and the final call to belief, the final call to belief. Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. By the way, these will be the final words of Jesus' public appeal given to the people of Israel. This is it. He speaks again at the end of the chapter. If you have a red letter Bible, you'll see the verses there going to the end. But since Jesus withdraws right after these words, it is believed that John just includes those words at the end as a summary over his um, ministry to Israel. Jesus won't be seen publicly again until his trial and crucifixion. And in this final call to believe, he gives this picture of a man who is going on a walk, essentially. And he's walking, and suddenly the, the sun begins to um, set outside. So there's an urgency in this call. 
He needs to walk quickly while there's still light in order to get home. He says, walk while you have the light. And you know, this time of year, the sun is already beginning to quickly disappear. Did anyone notice that this week? And we haven't even gotten to the, the hour fall back there. But we'll be trying to get the dogs out one last time before it's, it's dark. Because, you know, when it's dark, well, we got a little um, skunk uh, critter friend out back who likes to come out. He likes to come play us when it's dark. And the instant that goes from, from daylight into darkness, we know trouble awaits us out there. <laughs> so we'll be thought, uh, walking and, and, and thinking, well, we might have one more time to, to make another quick pass around before the darkness sets in. And that's the picture that Jesus uses here. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And throughout John's gospel, he's highlighted this theme of the light. The light. For it was Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. And we've seen him use this metaphor over and over again. And it's an image of hope. It's a picture of hope. That, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John chapter 1. And so here he says to the people, the light is among you for only a little while longer. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. He warns the people, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. The darkness is strong. The darkness disorients you. And don't be misled. The darkness is very powerful. And it's very seductive. And what we see that happening right in the world around us. The kinds of norms that people are trying to establish in the world. You just say to yourself, how does anybody think that this is right? How does anybody think that this is just? Well, because you got a lot of people in the darkness who can't see. That's why. Because darkness is persuasive. And they work in the power of Satan. So Jesus gives one final call to believe. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Thousands of people today. I think in America, 8,000 people today will breathe their last breath. Very few of them wake up this morning having any idea it will be their last. With urgency, we must be that light that sets up on the hill for the world to see. Pointing people to Christ. Pointing people to Christ. Bringing glory to God. As we close, notice how it looks like verse 36 has come to an end. Because in most Bibles, probably in yours, there's a paragraph break there. But I want you to notice the very next sentence. It's, it's, it's still a part of verse 36. It says when Jesus had said these things he departed and hid himself from them. Um, as I told you a moment ago, these are the last public words that he's going to speak to Israel. You've just heard them. From here on out, you're going to hear what's referred to as the upper room discourse. That will be just between Jesus and his very closest followers and then of course you get the high priestly prayer which is between the son and the father he had told them the light is among you for a little while longer 
and then he physically leaves. The Christ departs. The gospel of grace is still offered. Thanks be to God. But one day, we all depart. And at the end, the judge of the earth will separate the sheep from the goats. And he will say the those on his right on who believed, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. But for those who did not believe, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And the good news of being here today is that you've heard the gospel. And you've heard the truth of God's glory being displayed on the cross as a payment for our sins, for whoever would believe. The bad news is, is should you reject that gospel and die in unbelief, everyone in this room will, of course, stand before the Lord. And if you have not confessed him as the Christ, the Lord to be your Savior, you will see that departure of hope and grace. Hebrews 9 says, It is appointed unto men to die once, but after this, the judgment. There's, there's a weightiness in there, isn't there? So I ask of you today, do you know Christ as your Savior? Are, are you living for God's glory? If you have any doubts about that, if, if that is you, would you even this day call upon the name of the Lord? Confess to him that you are a sinner in, in the need of his amazing grace. His amazing grace. And would you ask him to be the Lord of your life? I want to close with one just final verse in Hebrews chapter 2. Because the writer to the Hebrews asks a great question. He asks, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Simply put, if the blood of Christ is not enough, as we just sang, nothing will be enough. But if it is sufficient, which by God's own affirmation it is, what judgment awaits the one who rejects the life and death of the very Son of God. So 2,000 years ago, the angels showed up and they said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. I pray the peace of God is yours as you are living for God's glory. I'd like to ask the leaders to uh, come up front at this time. Um, if you are in need of prayers this morning, um, we'll have men and women down front who would love to pray with you. And everyone else, I invite to please stand as we sing the song of invitation in Christ alone. <laughs>